Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another week of The Daily Oz. It is Monday, the 20th of June. I hope you're all feeling fresh after a great weekend. It was the Logies last night. Congratulations to all the winners there. Zara, on today's podcast, we're going to be circling back to the crisis in Ukraine. It's been 116 days since Russia first invaded the country. We'll check in and tell you about the latest developments. But first, Zara, what is making headlines this Monday morning? There was a fairly massive story over the weekend with the UK government approving the extradition of Australian Julian Assange to the United States. Assange has 14 days to appeal the decision and a spokesperson from the UK Home Office said, in this case, the UK courts have not found that it would be oppressive, unjust or an abusive process to extradite Mr Assange. To Asia now and dozens of people have died and millions are stranded as a result of severe flooding in parts of India and Bangladesh. Both countries have asked for military assistance as the flooding seems set to worsen even more, with weather officials labelling the volume of rain unprecedented. Haven't heard about some COVID news in a while, but the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has authorised two COVID-19 vaccines for children under the age of five. US President Joe Biden said vaccines could be rolled out to the under five age groups as early as next week, and that is, of course, pending CDC approval. Biden said for parents across the US, today is a day of relief. And your Monday morning good news comes from New South Wales, where Premier Dominique Perrottet has announced the Aboriginal flag will be permanently installed on the Sydney Harbour Bridge by the end of this year. The government will allocate $25 bucks in the budget for the installation. Sam, the nature of the 24-hour news cycle means that stories can often disappear as fast as they arrive, and it's no different for an event as momentous as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So on today's episode, we thought that we'd bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the region as the invasion enters its 116th day. Okay, so let's start with some of the important numbers. The inspiration for this deep dive came from a piece that I read yesterday in the New York Times where they kind of took stock of some of the data that has come from Ukraine. But this line really struck me. They wrote, a war can be measured by many metrics. Territory won or lost, geopolitical influence increased or diminished, treasure acquired or resources depleted. But for the people suffering under the shelling who hear the whistling of incoming missiles, the crack of gunfire on the streets and the wails of loss out of shattered windows, the death toll is the most telling account of a war. So to that death toll, and the UN says that more than 4,500 civilians have been killed and nearly 5,600 have been injured. Thousands of combatants have also been killed or injured on both sides. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said recently as many as 200 Ukrainian soldiers were dying every day. More than 13 million people have fled their homes, according to the UN. The death toll from Russia's army is much harder to determine, but the Ukrainian military claims more than 33,000 Russian soldiers have been killed since the war began. In those initial weeks, I remember that many people weren't familiar with President Zelensky and certainly became accustomed to seeing him front up to many a press conference. Is he still front and centre? He's absolutely the main character in Ukraine. Just yesterday, he made his first trip to Ukraine's war-torn southern front. And the reason he visited that region was that it's where Ukrainian forces are mounting a slow-moving advance to try and recapture some of the territory they have lost. 
We're talking here about cities like Odessa, which have been the subject of constant shelling from Russian forces, but seem to have held out being a target for an on-ground invasion. There, Zelensky talked to troops and he said, our brave men, each one of them is working flat out. We will definitely hold out. We will definitely win. And when Zelensky's not talking to troops in his trademark khaki armor wear, he's met regularly with international leaders actually in Kyiv since Moscow pulled its forces away from the capital city. Last week, he hosted the leaders of Germany, France, and the UK. I thought a point that was interesting, Zara, is that he started to visit areas which could be described as more of fighting hotspots, including Kharkiv in the east of the country. Now, this obviously presents risks to the president and his team, safety risks, but he seems more set than ever to show both Ukrainians and an international audience that Ukraine is in good hands. You said at the top of this that we are on day 116 and obviously even the closest news watchers and those watching from afar can't keep up with every single day. Can you give me a sense of how much is happening in one day in this devastating conflict? To be totally honest, it's enough to fill this deep dive of this podcast every single day. I went really deep yesterday to try and understand what happened in a 24-hour period, and the list is extraordinary. There was a prisoner exchange where five captured Ukrainians were returned to Ukraine in exchange for five captured Russians. Russian missiles destroyed a fuel storage depot in eastern Ukraine and a gas plant in the north. There was a large movement of troops to the region of Lushank from other battle zones, and that suggests that Russian forces are looking to gain full control of cities in that region. Meanwhile, the US announced they are considering sending four additional rocket launches to Ukraine. All of that happened in one 24-hour period yesterday. So as you just mentioned, supplying weapons has been one way to respond to the invasion. But for the West, the other way has been imposing sometimes severe sanctions. Do we know if those sanctions are deterring Russia at all? So according to numerous media reports, the sanctions imposed by Western countries like Australia and the exodus of more than a thousand multinationals like McDonald's are starting to bite hard in Russia, although it's being felt most by ordinary Russians, not the oligarch and the government. GDP is expected to decline by double digits and inflation is forecast to hit 20% by the end of the year. Now, Russia is starting to shut down some of their economic reporting, which means it is definitely going to get harder for us to understand how these sanctions are working inside the country. I guess you also have to remember that Russia have been dealing with sanctions of some kind since 2014. So undoubtedly, the current sanctions are more severe than the previous sanctions. But there is still a sense that Russia does know how to run its economy with sanctions in place. Of more concern to the international community is this idea that the sanctions could have a boomerang effect. The boomerang effect is exactly what it sounds like. It's about the effects coming back to harm those who impose the sanctions. For example, Bloomberg reported this week that White House officials are getting a bit spooked that the economic measures they unleashed at the beginning of the war are not exactly working. Research conducted by Foreign Policy magazine suggests that sanctions are more likely to work in smaller, weaker nations. We've seen examples of sanctions being powerful diplomatic tools in places like Sierra Leone, the Dominican Republic and Nepal. We haven't seen the same thing in Russia and it's been, as we've been saying, 116 days of sanctions. 
We did hear from Russian President Vladimir Putin at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum on Friday. Now, this is an event usually held by Russia to showcase their economy to thousands of visiting business leaders from around the world. But this year, it was held with almost no Western attendees. Putin said the West was exhibiting colonial arrogance and trying to crush his country with stupid sanctions that amounted to an economic blitzkrieg. Putin also told the forum he would continue the war in Ukraine, saying we are strong people and can cope with any challenge. Like our ancestors, we will solve any problem. The entire thousand-year history of our country speaks of this. And I feel like this question was asked a lot at the beginning and perhaps less so 116 days in. But do we have any sense of how long this war is going to last for? There were some comments yesterday from NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg. He said it could take years. He said specifically, we must prepare for the fact that this could be years. We must not let up in supporting Ukraine. And I think that's a really important bid. It was echoed by UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who warned against Ukraine fatigue setting in, saying it was important to show that allies were standing with Ukraine for the long haul in its war against Russia. In Kyiv, this sentiment is being felt as well, where the mayor told the BBC his country will only enter peace talks after the last Russian soldier has left Ukraine. So there's a real sense on the ground that this is a conflict that's here to stay. Now, I'm really interested in this idea of Ukraine fatigue and our responsibilities are as journalists to somewhat negate it. I was reading an account of a TV journalist in Ukraine who broadcasts to primarily Americans who said, quote, it was harder to sell a story about Ukraine as people are just tired of this war. Now, we knew this was coming, and it probably was sped up because of the Australian election, a spate of shootings in the US, and the economic downturn, and now an energy crisis. But we do have to actively try to remain up to date in this important, consequential, and tragic conflict. I think that that is a good note to end on because certainly if you look at the challenges this country is facing, at least on an economic front, a lot of them seem to be tied with what is happening in the region. And at times it can be difficult to, on an ongoing basis, provide that empathy and really engage with the war. But the destruction hasn't stopped, the deaths haven't stopped. And for the civilians in Ukraine, it's just a nightmare that continues. So I think that fatigue point is definitely a good one to end on. That's all we've got time for on today's podcast, though. You can listen to us tomorrow. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. It really, really helps us. Hope you have a good start to the week. We will speak to you tomorrow.